The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You know, throughout the history of the world, humans have had all sorts of interesting ideas about God, about the gods, and about all that, that is divine behind what is reality. But one thing that is quite unique is this idea of being satisfied by God. That is strange in the history of the world. In fact, in the time that David lived, most of the people around him, most of the other nations believed in a pantheon of gods. They believed there were all sorts of gods, and those gods were anything but caring about us. They were vengeful and greedy and lust-filled and all sorts of things. The only consistent thing about the gods was their inconsistency. In fact, uh, I brought a few of the church-friendly uh, examples. Um, one of them was Arachne. Arachne, uh, she was a beautiful weaver. The only problem is that she was better than the goddess Athena. And the goddess Athena was not in herself satisfied to be second place. And so what she did is she turned, apparently, turned Arachne into a spider. And thus we have the first spider woman. Uh, this guy, Tantalus, Tantalus, uh, uh, he made the mistake of stealing some of the, the food of the gods, ambrosia. He stole the food of the, of the gods. And so um, for his punishment, what they did is they, they, they cast him apparently in, for all eternity into a place where he was up to his neck in water and beautiful fruit trees all around him. But whenever he was thirsty, the water would go away. And whenever he was hungry, the trees would retreat so that he would spend eternity never being satisfied. You see, that's what the gods did. They, they didn't satisfy, they terrified. That was their purpose. But our God is different. The God of David is different. The God of David is a good shepherd. The God of David leads us and guides us. And what we're going to see today is that the God of David, our God, Yahweh God, is our comfort. Let's take a look at the passage. We saw this first part last week. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Beautiful passage. But then the passage ends with these eight words that we're going to be looking at today. And it says this, your rod and your staff, they 
comfort me. It is eight English words. It's actually only four Hebrew words, okay? The, the, the rod of you and the staff of you. They, those two things, they comfort me. That's it. Now, I got to tell you, there's not much about the sentence structure that is all that unique. It's pretty straightforward. It's a very simple phrasing. In fact, I can, I can even put it as an equation for you. This is profound. Get ready. Wait for it. The rod. Hold on. Plus staff. Are you with me here? Equals comfort. What? Okay, and that's, all, that's, that's actually what it's saying. It's very clear. However, what these words really mean for us, that's why I have 30 minutes with you. Because why in the world, why in the world would, would David say that a rod and a staff comforts me? Those two instruments in the hand of the gods would have been terrifying. But here God, here David is saying to us that these instruments, they give us comfort. And I don't know about you, but I, I could see him, I could understand him saying that God, your, your presence comforts me. Oh God, your voice comforts me. Your gentle hands comfort me. But hard weapons, <laughs> a, a, a staff, that, that's, that's unique. And so I think it would be good if we take a look at what these instruments would have mean and would have meant in those days. So I brought with me some of those instruments. In fact, this, this is a rod. In fact, my, my father bought this off of, a, off of a shepherd in Africa. Literally, he took it out and gave it to my dad. Uh, and, and this, I'm told, is very similar to what David would have been talking about. It's a, it's a root ball of, of a hardwood tree sapling that was cut and it was shaped exactly for a shepherd. And this thing is hard. You know, um, the, the historian and biblical scholar uh, named Kenneth Bailey, he lived among shepherds for a while, and so he wrote this book, A Shepherd's Look at Psalm 23. And he says about the rod, he says, I, I used to watch the native lads having competitions to see who could throw his rod the greatest, with the greatest accuracy at the greatest distances. He says the effectiveness of these crude clubs in the hands of a skilled shepherd was a thrill to watch. The rod was, in fact, an extension of the owner's right arm. It stood as a symbol of his strength, his power, and his authority in any serious situation. See, the rod was a symbol of the shepherd's strength and power. But that power was not used against the flock. You see, the power was used to protect the flock. His power and his strength was to keep the flock safe. It was used against the enemies of the flock. In fact, I'm guessing that David was quite familiar with one of these. When he when he tells Saul that he had killed the lion and the bear, he didn't punch them to death, okay? 
he probably had something like this. And these things would be lethal. And so the, the rod was a weapon. But the staff, the staff was a tool. And it was a, a specifically designed tool for sheep. Look what Kenneth Bailey says. He says about the staff, he says, The staff is, is uniquely an instrument used for the care and management of the sheep. And only sheep. It will not do for cattle, horses, or dogs. It is designed, shaped, and adapted specifically, especially to the needs of sheep. And it is used only for their benefit. It is used for their good. You see, it was just long enough and, and hard enough and rigid enough to, to tap a sheep that has gone the wrong direction, to bring them around. And then if they needed more than a tap, this crook was designed just to get around a sheep's neck and say, come on over. You see, the staff was designed to guide people in the right direction. So I think if we understand what these are about, we understand that when David says that, the, that he's comforted in God's rod and in God's staff, what he's saying is, I'm comforted, God, in your power, and in your wisdom. David's comfort come, came from God's superior power and unmatched wisdom. And I got to say, and this is kind of nice to have, so I'm going to just use it. Uh, this and right here, this and right here is of crucial importance here. Because think about it. If there were a divine being that had all the power but didn't have the wisdom, you know what that would give us? Rod minus staff equals danger. This is the way that all the Greek, Greeks lived. Uh, you know, think about the Greek gods and Roman gods throughout the time. They were scared of the power of God because God did not have, their gods did not have wisdom. And likewise, a staff, all the wisdom of God, without the power to do anything about it, that would just be useless. This is all the, the deists who think that Jesus was just a good teacher, but didn't have any power. That would be useless. It's only, it is only comforting because God has both the power and the wisdom. And so here we are, back to our, back to our equation. We, we've seen what these two words mean, but now I want to take some time and focus on comfort. See, do you remember, do you remember where David is when he recognizes where he is thankful for the staff? And the rod? You remember in the psalm, it is when he is where? In the valley of the shadow of death. But interestingly, the, the shepherd would have been carrying these, these instruments the whole time, right? It, it, were, it was these things that got the sheep to the green pastures. These instruments were in the hands of the shepherd while they calmly sat beside still waters. And yet... David is thankful for them when he is 
in the valley. Makes me realize that actually understanding the comfort of God, we understand it best when we are either experiencing or living through or have experienced discomfort. Truth is that while God does promise his comfort, God's comfort, it's not always comfortable, is it? It's just not always comfortable. This is something that the God of the Bible does not promise us. He does not promise us that we will be comfortable. In fact, if, if I could just let you know, if you're here and you want a comfortable life, can I just suggest to you, um, don't read this book. If you just want to be comfortable, in fact, I, I wouldn't even keep attending here. Because it is not our goal to make you, to make my life comfortable. Our goal, the goal of this book, is to proclaim that Jesus is Lord of our lives. And that Jesus' reign in our lives means that he is going to push us and stretch us into places that we don't really always want to go. And if you read this book, you might just encounter the God of the universe who is often, often compared to a roaring lion. He is not tame. And one thing he offers is his presence, but he does not promise you to be, that you will be comfortable. And there's something so much better than being comfortable. There is God himself. And that's what he gives us. But here's the problem. I kind of like being comfortable. Anyone else? It's true. We're, we, we love to be comfortable. We, we surround ourselves with things that are comfortable, right? In fact, uh, standing up for evil, standing up to injustice, st taking a stand for righteousness, something that is just difficult. And there's a lot of evil out there, right? Don't you wish sometimes that God would use that big club of his? God, won't you just do this for me? Won't you just take care of it all? I think if that's you, you're in good company because I think David felt the same way. He says in Psalm 3, Arise, Lord, deliver me, my God. Strike all my enemies on the jaw. Break the teeth of the wicked. I love it. He's saying, God, will you just punch them in the face? And yet, uh, like I said, we don't see God's rod flying through the sky very often. In fact, it seems like a lot of evil, bad people get away with it. And then they live what seems to be pretty nice lives, right? Even David, he went through valleys. God didn't take care of all of his enemies. And so maybe what David is saying here is not, he's not thanking God for the rod because the rod is going to take care of all of his enemies. What he's thanking God for is that even when he has enemies and even in the hard times, that he, that God is there with him and that God is for him. 
This, this, is, this is all throughout the Bible. This is Romans, 1, or Romans 8. Romans 8. If God is for us, who can be against us, right? He goes on to say that, that who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And then he gives this list. Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And I think to myself, there's going to be a sword involved? <laughs> really? Because those things look like they're all against me, don't they? I don't want any of these things. Yet God's saying, I, I, I'm not promising that your life is going to be easy and comfortable. But what I am promising you is that my love will not leave you. That I will be there with you. It reminds me of the, the story of, of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You remember that? Other than, than having the three most unfortunate names in the Bible, they were men of incredible faith. Okay, it's, it's in Daniel 3, if you want to read the whole story. But what, what happens is they get sentenced to death because they did not bow down and worship an idol. Okay, it, remember there, there was pagan gods and these were the arbitrary type of God, uh, rules that they would set up. If you don't bow down, you die. Because they thought that that's what the gods would want. And so here, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, uh, they say, no, we're not going to do it. We're not going to bow to your gods. And so they're sentenced to death and what they say back to the king. They say, oh king, uh, our God can save us. Our God has the power to save us. But even if he doesn't, as if they're saying, even if in his wisdom he chooses not to, we are still not going to bow. So, sure enough, the king turns the fiery furnace up to 11, right? He, he makes this thing hot and he throws them in. And then King Nebuchadnezzar, the pagan, is almost prophetic in his words because he, he looks and says, wait a minute, how many did we throw in there? Of course, three. But then he says, I see four men walking in the flames unharmed. And one of them looks as if he is the son, a son of the gods. Now here, this, this pagan, what he saw looked like a son of the gods because that's what he understood. But I think he was close because I think that standing there in the flames with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego was none other than the son of God, Jesus himself. And what that story is there to tell us is not to say that God's going to stop everything. He's not going to save us all the time. He's not going to give us miracles all the time. But what he is going to do is that in our fires, he will be there with us. God won't put out all your fires, but he will meet you in the flames. Oh, Emmanuel Faith, this has even, I'm sure, special meaning for some of you who are escaping flames even today. As, as the flames roar around California, God's not promising he's just going to put them all out but no matter what happens, he's going to be there with you. And that is good news. <laughs> Neither death nor life. 
nor angels or principalities. Neither present nor future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything in all else of creation will separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is where our hope is. But now, it's our turn. It's our turn to look at ourselves. And I got to tell you, I'm going to ask you a question that I was kind of mad at myself for asking because it was just a little too convicting this week. The question is, where do I go for comfort? And as I thought about this question, I thought to myself, well, uh, I believe everything that I'm saying about who God is, that God has power and that God has wisdom. And I believe that I should go to these things. The problem is that I go to all sorts of other things instead. One of them is, one of them is food. In fact, uh, isn't, it, uh, isn't it interesting that the, the food that is the most unhealthy and most addicting is called comfort food, right? Comfort food. And it feels good, right? It feels so good going down. I can't get enough of it until I'm walking out the door and thinking, oh, why did I eat that much? Anyone else? I know I go to silly places. I go to, I go to Netflix. You know, after a, a long day, I just, I just want to, I just don't want to think about anything. So uh, it's nice to relax, right? But do you see the silliness of this? Here, here I am. I, I've been given the great comforter. I've been given the almighty God as revealed in the person of Jesus. And instead of going to him when I'm stressed, I go to reruns of the office. <laughs> now, isn't that pathetic? And yet we do it all the time, don't we? We go to what's immediate, what's there. We're looking for comforts. Some of us turn to alcohol or sex or pornography or social media or work or position or power or money and on and on and on. We go looking for comfort. And what I'm here to tell you today is that there is something better. I think C.S. Lewis was, was right when he said this, that comfort is the one thing you cannot get by looking for it. Now, he says, if you look for truth, you may find comfort in the end. If you look for comfort, though, you will not get either comfort or truth, only soft soap and wishful thinking to begin with, and in the end, despair. And oh, how true that is. That is the feeling that is the feeling of, of sitting at the TV and looking at your watch thinking, oh my goodness, I can't get those three hours back. I can't believe I spent all that time doing that. So if we go back to our equation, and what, what Lewis is saying, 
is that we go after this, and we go after this, and we're looking for comfort in our lives. We're not looking for truth. Instead, we go to comfort and comfort and again and again and again. So the question becomes, how do we, how do we as followers of Jesus train ourselves to desire these things, not this? And I want to suggest to you a practice, a practice for us. I think one way that we can begin this journey to actually uh, intentionally intentionally focus on this is to begin by actually denying this. Choosing to say, I- I'm not going to focus here and I'm going to focus here. It- it's actually an ancient discipline that I want to remind you of. It's a discipline that Jesus practiced. It's a discipline that many of his followers have practiced. It's a discipline that he assumed his followers would practice, that we would practice. It's a discipline of fasting. Fasting is often done with giving up food, but it can be done with anything. And all that fasting is, is an intentional denial of our cravings for a period of time in order to crave something better. The goal is the words of Jesus who says, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. You know, the truth of the Bible is that there is a comfort that will satisfy you, that will satisfy me so much more than the worldly cravings that I tend to go to. That we will be satisfied not by filling ourselves with bread, but by filling ourselves with God and his word. That is what we are supposed to crave. So the truth is that comfort doesn't come from filling my cravings, but from craving God's filling. You see, we as people, we crave the wrong things, and I'm the first to say that's me. I crave the wrong things. And so I I need to train myself to crave God's filling. And so the question becomes, where do you go for comfort? When you're stressed, what is it that you turn to? If it's food, I want to suggest that that you, you do something crazy and skip a meal. All the advertisers, they want you to eat more, right? And, and I want you to do some counterculture. Skip a meal, whoa. Just long enough. So th- those hunger pangs, they begin to rise. And those pangs are supposed to remind us that I live for something more. I live for something greater. What if, what if for a day you... you uh, you don't take your phone with you. Oh, it's right. <sighs> I mean, I don't know. That's tough. 
What if, what if we, we, you know, you cancel a night on Netflix? I mean, and what if? And every time you reach for the phone, you realize, ah, oh, I, don't, I, don't, I don't live by the phone alone. <laughs> I live on the word of God. Every word that comes from the mouth of God. That is how we crave God's filling. That's one way that we can crave God's filling. And, and I don't mean to tell you that all of those things are, are, are bad things. Okay? Food is good. Food is a blessing from God. And yet, at times, it's good for us to just realize the hold it has on us. And all of those other, I mean, that, that's, that's the goal of this. Because let me just say, there's no points for pain. God's not saying, oh, oh, you really, you know, you didn't eat. But that does, that's not the way God works. The purpose of it is actually to focus on something better. And if it doesn't cause you to focus on something better, then it's not doing its job. The, the purpose of denying ourselves is actually to focus on something better. And so it's not just about not eating. It's about eating something better, something more, something greater. What I want to suggest to you is that we fast in order to feast. We fast in order to feast on something so much better. And there is something so much better for you. <laughs> I just love that in our psalm, right after he goes to the valley of the shadow of death, he sees the comfort that is in God's rod and God's staff. And then he's taken to a feast. You prepare a table before me. We'll get there next week. But can I tell you what that feast really is? What that feast really is that we feast on? Because I think we actually, we can understand this better than David. And that's because we stand on the other side of the cross. David was looking forward. He hadn't seen Jesus. He didn't know anything about that. But the Apostle Paul he clarifies something for us. He says, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both, Greek, both Jew and Greek. Okay? It, it doesn't matter your, your, the former way that you looked at the gods, whether you were one who believed those, all those Greek things or not. What I have for you, Paul is saying, is the answer to all that you're looking for. And that answer is Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. This is what we feast on. This is our answer. It is Jesus who gives us comfort. It is Jesus who lived a life and taught us how to live that life. He gave us his wisdom. And it was Jesus who by the power of God endured the cross for us, something we could not do for ourselves. It was his power. It was the power of God that raised him from the grave, conquering death, conquering sin, so that we might have life. Let Jesus be your comfort. Let him be your peace. That's my prayer for you. 
Let's close asking God to be our comfort. Lord, that is our prayer. God, why do I go to all those other things when here you are offering me everything? God, would you teach me? Would you teach me how to go to your truth? Remind me of your, of your goodness. Remind me of your strength. Remind me that you have unmatched wisdom. God, I pray that I would focus on those. And because of that, because of what Jesus has done for us, because of who Jesus is, and because Jesus is here with me, would you give me your comfort? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen, amen, amen.